You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Don Waller is a forest ecologist, conservation biologist, and evolutionary biologist who taught ecology, evolution, and conservation biology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison as the J.T. Curtis professor until 2019. Don is a member of the Rewilding Leadership Council and chairs the Science Advisory Council for the Midwestern Environmental Law and Policy Center. Bob Boucher has an MS in Water Resource Management from the UW-Madison with an emphasis in Ecosystem Management of Watersheds. He studies landscape ecology and is advisor to the Beaver Institute. He was the founder of Milwaukee Riverkeeper and is the retired executive director of Cedar Lakes Conservation Foundation, Wisconsin's oldest land trust. I'm excited about today's podcast because we're talking about rewilding in a place often skipped over in conversations about wildway designs, the Midwest, upper Midwest to be exact, but I'll let Bob start us off in describing this critical piece of the upper Midwest mega linkage. Superior Bioconservancy is an ambitious plan to protect and restore the biological integrity and the hydrology of the Lake Superior watershed and the Laurentian Forest province. And the goal is to restore and support its biodiversity, genetic exchange, and ecosystem services, as well as the evolutionary processes for future generations. So in essence, this is a healthcare plan for this bioregion of the earth. So Lake Superior is the largest and purest freshwater lake in the Western Hemisphere. As such, it's critical that we protect its ecology and watershed from ruin. And the Laurentian Forest Province is the North Woods bioregion of the Western Great Lakes and includes parts of Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, and Ontario. But what's unique about that, this is a very high carbon landscape that has demonstrated its capacity to recover its primary features. And that high resilience can give the planet a significant drawdown of atmospheric carbon in the face of climate change. Uh, and so it has this capacity and we'd like to see our forest store that carbon and we want to make sure they're healthy and more robust. So it follows that if we help us combat climate change, we restore and expand that forest capacity to remove carbon from the atmosphere and forests as carbon sponges can significantly lower the levels of CO2. And the old growth forests store more carbon and support greater biodiversity than younger forests do. And so to give a scale on this, Jack, it's um, in the U.S. side, it's 88,000 square miles. But with, what's unique about that is that the uh, public lands in it, and this is national, county, and state forests represent... In parks. Uh, in parks, yeah. Represent um, 33,000 square miles. So that's an area bigger than the entire state of Maine that's public land. And within it, we have the lowest, they have the highest population also of wolves in the lower 48 with over 4,400 wolves uh, in those forests, which have a direct trophic cascade of benefit to the health of that. Beavers are uh, diminished more so uh, because they've been uh, hit pretty hard by trapping and, and poor management. But 
they have the ability rather quickly to restore the hydrology. And um, Don can give you uh, a good background on the uh, upper Midwest and what that composition is sort of its story. So Don? Sure. Um, we just heard the Lake Superior and the other Great Lakes are whopping big and are surrounded by a lot of land and a lot of that's public land. Um, it's a pretty wet wilderness to be in the middle of Lake Superior. Uh, mm -hmm. But one thing we've learned, especially while here in the Midwest, is that terrestrial and aquatic systems are linked, that you can't really protect one without being concerned about the other. Let's go back about 150 years to start with. We in the upper Midwest uh, once had extensive forests, barrens, wetlands, lakes, rivers, lots of shoreline habitat. Um, these were homes, homes to noble people, including the Ojibwe, the Oneida, the Ho-Chunk, Menominee, Potawatomi, and other tribes. This was an area that was invaded uh, by European uh, people, mostly in the 19th century, and settled pretty quickly. The Paul Bunyan era brought in a, a logging boom in the latter part of the 1800s. They were going after the giant white pines, and these were the, the redwoods of the of the Midwestern US, if you like, up to eight feet in diameter and over 200 feet tall. These were majestic forests. They were full of wildlife. And of course, it wasn't just big trees, it was big animals too. We had woodland bison, we had woodland caribou, uh, we had elk, um, deer, of course. Lumberjacks were hungry though, and so the critters were shot out to fill those stew pots at the same time that the forests were felled. And I want to give your listeners, Jack, a, a sense of what a biological holocaust this great cutover period was in the latter 1800s and early 1900s. This cutover caused, just devastated the forest. I mean, the, it was a moonscape by the time they were done with it. All the big animals uh, were lost and most of the big trees. Um, it was so reduced by logging that George Weyerhaeuser pulled up stakes, skipped out on his taxes, and moved west. Um, we had an, on October the 8th, 1871, by the way, the same day as the Chicago fire, the largest and deadliest wildfire in American history. This was the Peshtigo fire, burned 1.2 million acres across three counties, one and a half times the size of Rhode Island. It killed somewhere between 15 and 2,500 people. Nobody knows because all the records were lost. Twelve cities and towns disappeared. The, the point here is that the Peshtigo fire was just one of many of these devastating fires that were, were kindled by all the logging slash uh, that was left over. There, I've seen parts of Michigan, these are barrens, where the, the heat of these fires was so intense that the soil was cooked and no trees have grown back in the 150 years since then. So this biological holocaust following the great cutover is a period when the Midwest lost all its big mammals. We lost our giant trees. We lost the wolf and the moose, except in Minnesota. We lost cougar and wolverine. We lost the woodland caribou, the elk, the woodland bison. And deer were very rare in northern Wisconsin, extirpated in the southern part of our state. This devastation, I feel convinced, uh, this devastation in the Midwest led to the first big wave of conservation. John Muir was uh, from Wisconsin, and it was he, of course, that lobbied so hard and ultimately successfully to create our first national parks. 
Um, but we also, this is the era in the late 1800s and early 1900s where we have our first protective game laws, where we have the Migratory Bird Act. We see the creation of the national forests. So what we had left over from this logging period was a, a lot of bare ground. And it's a, a tribute to the resilience of the landscape that the forests have grown back. Most people, by the way, visiting the upper Midwest and especially the, the forests in northern Minnesota and Wisconsin and Michigan have little inkling of just how destroyed those forests were. And they, they, they're they not always able to recognize the difference between the second growth forests that have come back and the old growth that was originally here. The Weeks Act of 1911 allowed federal dollars to buy up forest land in the eastern U.S. that became our national forests. We have these big public lands that Bob talked about, the 33,000 square miles of public lands in the upper Midwest, include uh, eastern national forests like the Chippewa and Superior in Minnesota, the Shawangan Nicolay in Wisconsin, and the Ottawa and Hiawatha National Forests in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. We also saw the establishment of a few national parks and wilderness areas. These are puny by Western standards, but um, not that small. Minnesota has Voyagers National Park, the St. Croix National Scenic Riverway, the Grand Portage National Monument. We have the Apostle Island National Lakeshore uh, on, the, on the shore of Lake Superior, set up uh, under John Kennedy's uh, administration. Michigan has pictured rocks, Isle Royal, once famous for its wolves, now so inbred they disappeared, uh, although they're talking about bringing them back there. Sleeping Bear Dunes, Indiana Dunes. These are magnificent places. I don't want to denigrate any of them, but each one of them individually is limited in size, limited in extent. Each one of them does not provide enough uh, area to support a healthy population of wolves or wolverines or cougars. In Canada, we have wonderful provincial parks in Ontario, including the Quetico Wilderness, across the border from the Boundary Waters Canoe Area in Minnesota. They have Sleeping Giant, Pigeon River, Rainbow Falls, Lake Superior. These are beautiful and worth visiting. So we're lucky to have these beautiful places. But um, what, what Bob and I see is a real opportunity here in the upper Midwest to begin to connect the dots, connect these areas. This is all laid out nicely in Dave Foreman's book, uh, Rewilding North America. But the, the code words here are cores, corridors and connectivity. The forests have regrown. Most of these forests are second growth, but they're maturing and gaining structure. I've spent a lot of my free time in the last 30 years trying to convince the Forest Service here in the Midwest to give these, these forests more of a chance to regrow and not to cut them down when they get to be 80 or 100 years old. Trees in this region easily live to be 200 years plus for oaks, 300 years plus for pines and hemlock, 400 years plus for many of these, these individual trees. Um, let's turn and talk about uh, wildlife now. Bob has spent some time thinking about beaver, and I've spent a lot of my professional career looking at, at deer and the way deer interact with forests. Uh, and all of your listeners know more than we may about wolves and, and cougar, I suppose. But why don't you say a few words, Bob, about um, these the key roles that these species play? Okay, thanks, Don. What we're trying to eventually do is really a collaborative conservation plan that will effectively advocate for the creation of protected wildlife corridors to connect these large blocks of public forest lands, the federal, state, and county. 
So as we face this mass extinction of our wildlife, this will help to avoid the fragmentation and restore biodiversity across the landscape. And so there's a unique thing here, Jack, that we have what's referred to as eufructuary rights that the tribes have as a leftover from the, uh, the, the treaties that were done in eight, from 1836 through 1854. So these, there's 11 bands of Ojibwe, and they said, we'll sign this if we have rights to continue to cross this land to basically hunt and gather. So the fruits of the land is really what eufructuary comes down to, and that means that the land has to have the capacity to function for producing, let's say, wild rice, or wildlife or medicinal plants. And many of these things are only there if the land is healthy enough to do so. In other words, a forest crop like a pine plantation does not have that capacity. So it functions somewhat like a conservation easement. So, and also prior to 1600, the Western Great Landscape had one of the, this high beaver population densities in North America, averaging in some places, as I mentioned, 20 to 30 per square mile. So these beaver colonies dominated the rivers and streams and they were established over generations. So this is a structure. Beavers is an unusual animal in that it gives its families really an inheritance. So these structures and these wetland complexes were, are the richest habitats. They are our rainforest, if you will, of the, of the upper Midwest. They supported vast wildlife communities. And the hydrology of these wetland complexes clean the waters, stabilize the flow volumes during wet and dry periods. They also stabilize stream temperatures. So you cool the base flows in summer and you warm the water in winter. So over winter survival, many species in our harsh northern winters, you have, you have higher density of beavers, you have greater um, structure on the landscape. With climate change, another thing that we're seeing here is um, what we call cell storms. So we're getting these types of rain events where you have a smaller pocket of a high intensity of energy released in a lot of precipitation, let's say a 50 square mile area, where you might get 12 inches of rain in 12 hours. And so when you do that, you blow out streams and you cause a huge expense in terms of infrastructure, ripping out culverts, bridges, and things like that. So what beavers do is actually they put structure and stabilize the geomorphology of the landscape. So this landscape of this Western Great Lakes, we still have all this public land, but much of the land is also uh, private, is still in forest. So agriculture, you have poorer soils, there's more um, mineral soils than organic soils. And so for the most part, it still is forest. And we could see a recovery of this area for its carbon and for its biodiversity of this region. Uh, wolves um, are unique in that they have affected the behavior of, beer, of, of deer. And Don has become really an expert in how this herbivore affects the forest. So they'll consume as much as 40% of a forest plant diversity. So when wolves are present, their feeding behavior is altered. So because of their fear of the, of the wolves, so they avoid the central den and rendezvous areas. This allows for the reestablishment and the thriving of certain browse species. So we know because of the connectivity of the forest, the forest has to be more robust. And this diversity adds the same type of structure of robustness and capacity to store carbon. So it makes the forest more uh, resilient when you have wolves in the landscape. It's a trophic cascade that um, Don's studies have uh, documented 
and he's been looking at the effects of deer populations, uh, a deer on, as the primary herbivore of these forests for well, 30 years or so. So the idea of our program is to use the science of the science of conservation science and biology to guide public policy and to get action, and it's needed now, given the accelerating pace of climate change and our current extinction rates, that the urgency is really alarming. And so we need meaningful leadership from government, which there is a great uh, vacancy of now. And so we're going to draw the maps and create a vision for a brighter future. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. I would just like to pause for station identification and say, yes, you guys really are listening to people talking about rewilding in the upper Midwest. I just wanted to say that because I don't get to talk about rewilding in the Midwest very often, and I know that people don't hear about it very often either. So it's just uh, acknowledgement of, of, of and gratitude for you guys and people like you. I'm sure there's a big coalition of organizations um, brewing or already together. Give us a sense of where mapping is now, if we can see any maps, any preliminary things or anything to for people to get a sense of the scope here um, visually. I'm a map guy. Uh, I know a lot of people in, that are interested in rewilding are. And also give us a sense of how big this is outside of you and your immediate organizations, because for such a huge area, you're going to need a lot of hands on deck, right? Yes, we will. <laughs> Yeah, we need, um, and we envision having a lot of these uh, different partners on this. They're the conventional environmental organizations. Nature Conservancy has done some remarkable work in the upper Midwest. Uh, they're keenly interested in the carbon value of the forests that they're protecting right now. We feel as though the state and uh, national forests will eventually get with this program as well. It's within their mandates, clearly. But a key set of partners I want to talk about for a minute um, are the Indian tribes we have here in the Midwest. We really, uh, we've already begun to work with the Indian tribes and we feel this is crucial for several different reasons. First of all, it's the morally right and respectful thing to do. This was their land to begin with before Europeans arrived on their shores. But in addition, the, uh, the tribes here in Wisconsin, the native indigenous people have very deep historical and cultural knowledge that's highly relevant to this effort to rewild the upper Midwest. They have traditional ecological knowledge, what we call TEK these days, and it's demonstrated in how they are managing their own forests and wildlife now. The Menominee Forest in northeastern Wisconsin was one of the first five or six forests, maybe the first, declared to be sustainably managed in all of North America. People go to the Menominee from around the world to see how an Indian tribe can manage its own forests and maintain a closed canopy and mature huge trees and yet re obtain a sustainable forest crop out of that. I wrote a paper with an Ojibwe colleague of mine, Nick Rio, called First Stewards that compared the ecological outcomes 
on Indian and non-Indian lands in northern Wisconsin. And in every single one of the five criteria we looked at, the Indian lands were being managed in a superior way uh, to the way uh, nearby public and private lands were being managed in terms of tree regeneration, understory diversity, health of the predator populations, and so forth. We have things, in other words, to learn from the Indians and how they manage their land. The Indians also are, are able and important partners because of the treaty rights they've obtained under federal court decisions in the 80s and 90s. These treaties date back to the 1830s and 40s. Uh, they include, as Bob mentioned, the usufructory rights to gather uh, materials. Uh, courts have ruled that they don't have timber rights on these lands, uh, but nevertheless, uh, they have legal rights that have yet to be fully understood uh, or applied. Um, but this is an effort that's just getting off the ground. Although there have been, uh, you know, there was rare too, the roadless area reviews that happened in the 80s and 90s. The Sierra Club and Audubon have all been involved with these public land debates as well. We, we have yet, uh, we're just putting the maps together now. We're collecting maps. We have a giant file full of maps. We're happy to <laughs> share those with you. Uh, and what we want to do now is start overlaying these and talk about particular areas. And uh, that's, that's, you're catching this, in other words, on the ground floor, just as we're really getting going. So as we, we put these maps together, you've got this, uh, these tribal lands, which have these, what they refer to as the ceded territory. And one of our key partners with this, as far as players in it, is an organization called Glyphwick, which is the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission. So these 11 bands across this region, uh, they actually have their own sort of Department of Natural Resources, which has a staff of about 80 people. So there's administrators as well as biologists. And in theory, they're supposed to be at the table of some of these major decisions with the Fish and Wildlife Services or the state uh, wildlife agencies, uh, and also with the forests that are managed by the, the county or the feds. We had a meeting uh, back in February with um, the the chairman of one of those and other uh, influential tribal uh, people with, and then also uh, a variety of different organizations like Sierra Club to try to de develop really a coalition of this and look at a, at a division, how we would work effectively together. So um, we will have a website uh, that it will be developed, will be up by the end of the month, end of, uh, let's say the 1st of um, August which has um, a number of these maps in it and shows the overlay and show basically so we've got mapped off all the national all the public lands and then we also in that we can share where the wolf range is is how the wolves have come back um, they have a really a great regulatory role across this this landscape and uh, that health of the land in terms of its carbon um, one of the cases can be made, one of the cases for wolves is that they are somewhat the antibody or the antidote for a healthy forest. And uh, if we want to have robust um, in terms of not only, let's say, potential timber production, but if we look at this 33,000 square miles of public land, it represents 38% of that entire forest. So the idea with the connective corridors, which would be say another 12%, we would be getting to 50-50. At least 50% of this land could be healthy. And a way to do that is really to incentivize it by selling, having a carbon market and selling those carbon credits in those areas where we get these corridors 
significant corridors of some width and substance and quality to protect the um, the uh, forests who get to mature to these older, more um, uh, established, greater biodiversity states. And that linkage and then it strengthens the, iron, the entire system. So it's reconnecting and focusing on the health. So uh, we look at it as there's across this area, um, many people in Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Michigan have uh, a place up north, um, their cabin, and in many cases on lakes. Um, Wisconsin has 10,000 lakes. Minnesota probably has 15,000 lakes. And so, how many? Minnesota has 30,000 lakes, but okay. Wisconsin has the <laughs> densest concentration of freshwater lakes in the world in the Northern Highland region with 10,000 lakes in a relatively circumscribed area. Yeah. So th this is really uh, an imprinted area. So a lot of people feel very defensive about this. And so we're, we're kind of also appealing not only to different environmental organizations, but the land ethic that looks upon this as Mother Earth and the sacred place that it is. And so we want to elevate uh, a land, the land ethics, um, not only of the community, but of how people live upon the planet. And so the, the native tribes, traditional stewardship, um, that uh, looking upon it as a stewardship, not just an extraction model, is the value that I think actually has a much higher, if there is such a thing as a silent majority, I think that one dominates. Because if someone lives on a lake, doesn't really, it, the water quality of that lake and the fact that they can, let's say, eat a fish out of that lake that's healthy, uh, and that there's an abundance of seeing wildlife on it, whether it's a bald eagle going by or a river otter coming by. So this isn't going to be easy, uh, Jack. Um, we've got a history of use, heavy use in the upper Midwest. Right now, the Schwamagon Nicolay National Forest is being whacked harder than any other national forest in the system. It's producing more timber than anywhere else. Now, that's not compatible with maximizing carbon sequestration and carbon storage. It's not compatible with bringing back the pine marten and the wolf and the cougar and the wolverine. Uh, we're busy uh, butting heads with the Forest Service because we're convinced that uh, we have a big opportunity here that needs to start with some of these bigger public lands. But forest management is contentious. The upper Midwest is the paper basket of the country. Uh, we have a lot of pulpwood and a lot of saw timber coming out of our forests. And it's not just forest management that's contentious. Deer management and wildlife management in general is contentious too. People have strong feelings about wolves. They have strong feelings about deer. I became a hunter myself to understand this uh, better. But deer become overabundant in the upper Midwest as they have across much of the continent. We see epidemics of wildlife diseases uh, like chronic wasting disease, a, a prion disease. Uh, spread especially in areas where deer are dense and where they come into contact with each other as over uh, bait or feeding stations. But we also have an epidemic of human diseases. Uh, Lyme disease uh, is carried by deer ticks, as is tick fever and babesiosis and half a dozen other diseases. The more deer you have and the more deer ticks you have, the more dangerous it is for people to spend time in the woods. Uh, and yet, just at a time when we need to come to grips with this overpopulation of deer that we have in many parts of the Midwest, uh, under the previous 
uh, Walker administration in Wisconsin, we imported a deer czar from Texas, who an expert on game farms, believe it or not, who um, systematically disassembled one of the better wildlife management programs in the country and replaced uh, a statewide program with county by county decision making heavily slanted towards uh, hunters. And even that, those some of those recommendations last week were just overridden by the state DNR board who decided they, they weren't shooting for high enough deer densities. It's got a lot of pieces to it. There are a lot of moving parts to rebuilding wilderness in the Midwest. Everyone has a different role to play here that wants to get involved, but we feel we can build this coalition. These lands have great value. They're just reaching a point, many of the forest lands, where they're recovering their structure and some of the grandeur that they once had. We're seeing wolves came back in on their own in 1981 to the state of Wisconsin after being extirpated and having a bounty on their head through the 1950s. Uh, we now see issues over whether deer, whether wolves will be delisted and whether there will be once again hunting and trapping of wolves in the state of Wisconsin as there was in 2012, 2013. Right. Mm -hmm. It yeah. was the trappers, by the way, that were really deadly. Uh, reaching quotas in half or a quarter of the time people expected them to. This plan really is to take this public land and, and change some of its focus from extraction of timber uh, to looking at it from a, a health standpoint and that the biodiversity is the, is the, uh, the, the gradient or the, the, the quality of the capital uh, is based on its biodiversity and its age classes. So uh, all species play a unique role in maintaining an an intact ecosystem and recovery of the, the keystone species uh, that needs to be a priority and one of the sort of the if you will the gold standard of that so both beavers and beaver and wolves are keystone species and they both create these amazing trophic cascades that benefit other species so uh, as these wetlands and the hydrology improves beavers are amazingly resilient in that so if you look at a place like Chernobyl which got totally crashed through the accident that happened there back in uh, 1986. It, in about 30 years, the European beaver completely restored that. And so now they have tours there, um, wildlife tours, because they re-flooded much of the area. And so you have these gardens of productivity of insects, reptiles, amphibians, fish, birds, and mammals. The same thing happens here. So if you look at a place like Voyager National Park, which uh, is a newer national park that was formed in 1976. Currently, it has one of the highest densities of beavers in North America. And But you have some unique relationships with birds with it. So you've got, it's 500 square miles, and there's 31 different rookeries in there of great blue herons. And 100% of them are on a beaver pond. 82% um, of the osprey nests are on a beaver pond. So these, these, this engineer, when you, re, water is life. And we are a region that is water rich. Uh, between the Great Lakes, our lakes and rivers and systems and our high rainfall. And because we're getting these cell storms, having the whole system more stabilized with something like beavers, which takes your, your rivers and reduces flooding. And these uh, filtration systems that these small wetland complexes have, they also store up to 30 times as much carbon as adjoining areas do. So they're a kind of an amazing functional system. Uh, they break down pollutants, for instance, from agriculture runoff. 
whether it's nitrogen or uh, too much phosphorus and or just being pesticides, herbicides, those have a chance to, in that organic soup that's behind a pond in the wetland, have a chance to break down and it's much cheaper and the water that comes out is clear, pure and healthier for all life. It's just really, really exciting. And I can hear the excitement in your voices as well about this. Uh, what about hearts and minds? As you guys are compiling all of this, and I know it's like, when, when are we going to find time for this? But the hearts and minds stuff, as you know, is really, it, that requires a, sort of an education campaign. That would be an ongoing thing. Do you guys talk about, with all the other things that you have to do with such a huge, ambitious project, um, anything regarding that part of the coalition that would be in charge of taking this vision on the road and making sure that it's not just our friends, but the general public uh, who don't think about conservation on a daily basis like we do, but they do need to know about this because you're going to need their support. Have you gotten that far yet or is that still in the works? It's a huge project, Jack, just as you say, uh, but we are we don't, we're not possessive about this. We want this to be everyone's idea. We've got a big coalition here. We want this to be bottom up. People don't need to know our names to understand the ideas and what's important. Things are exciting here. I mean, when I came to Wisconsin in the early 80s, I joined the Sandhill Crane Count because people were excited the Sandhill Cranes were coming back to Wisconsin. Yeah. Well, I can hear Sandhill Cranes in the morning from my bedroom now in the city of Madison. They're nesting in the Arboretum. Uh, they've increased to the tens of thousands in the state of Wisconsin. We have an incredibly intensive pattern of land use across much of the Midwest. Uh, this is where the hard part is going to be. In the West, you're kind of in a binary situation. It was the roadless areas that were being considered for wilderness and then the developed areas that were sort of written off. What we're trying to do is stake out a big middle ground and say, look, if we establish carbon markets, for forests where the economic value doesn't just come from cutting down the trees. If we begin to take wildlife recovery and trophic cascades seriously, the, the ecologicals, I kind of hate the term, it's lamentable, ecosystem services, the idea that these places and species are here for our benefit. But in fact, uh, the value of these systems is incredible. Clean air, clean water, fixing carbon, stabilizing hydrology. But we want this to be a big tent, and we, and we want this to be people's own idea of where they can work. There are people in the city who are just tickled pink to be restoring a postage stamp-sized patch of prairie or pollinator habitat in their backyard or in a, a vacant lot down their street. Uh, they're in the farmlands, we're beginning to see prairie strips. We're beginning to see wetland protection. Uh, we've got lost about half of our wetlands in the state of Wisconsin, but it turns out they're crucial to avoid flooding for all the reasons Bob has gone over with regard to, to beaver. So across this continuum of more and less intensively developed landscape, we have opportunities in each of them to, to move in the right direction. I like to talk about vectors of change. And I like to see rewilding happening in our cities and suburbs and in our farms and, and so-called working forests as much as I like to see rewilding at the wilderness end of the spectrum. We, we, all, we have a lot of, of, of progress we can make across this entire continuum. And that's um, one reason why the coalition needs to be broad and involve a lot of different kinds of expertise. 
And there are uh, within the coalition. So we're in the, the process of, of, you know, getting off the ground yet. And and I, it is going to be a, a heavy lift or a long lift. But nonetheless, one of the things we need to educate people on is really is that public land, this is your land. Would you rather have it be a place where someone can go and cut your trees down? Or would you rather just sit in the shade of a 400-year-old oak or white pine? And so and the idea of the eufuxiary part is that so that interest is really only possible if the forest function is maintained as an intact ecosystem. So you cannot clear cut an orchard and expect to harvest in the fall. So that right dictates that the ability of the land to regenerate life cannot be extinguished by another party. And so that, in essence, is that conservation easement that guarantees the land is capable of fruiting. And that land is embedded in land title and it's sovereign and recognized in federal law. Don mentioned that the Ojibwe have gone to court and they always win, which is kind of fun. Mm. <laughs> That's unusual, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, since everything is really getting rolling, uh, people, no matter where you're listening to this, you can get to rewilding.org slash POD. And on the page with this episode, there is going to be a continually updated, I can imagine, uh, list of extra credit links and other resources and information as this rolls out. Uh, Don and Bob, thank you so much for uh, taking the time today. I am super excited. I can hold my head a little bit higher as a Midwesterner. I'm so glad that you guys are part of the whole team heading this up, and I'm glad to hear that it's growing. And thank you so much for doing this work, and thank you for your time today. Thank you, Jack. Thanks, Jack, and thanks to the whole Rewilding Network. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.